Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. Tell me, what does it mean to be human in this particular technological moment? It can seem like conventional measures of what's true, permanent, and, well, human are up for grabs in the face of rapidly advancing tech. And if there's no special spark that truly separates us from other animals or our technological creations, does it matter? That's what we'll try to answer in our 10-part series, Being Human Now. This time, memory. the great things about advancements in digital tech, or at least the way it's sold to us, is how much more convenient it makes our lives. No need to remember the directions to your cousin's house, how to convert miles into kilometers, your best friend's phone number, or even their birthday for that matter. Some combination of apps, devices, notifications, and platforms store all that information for you now, ready when you need it. In 500 meters, or 0.310686 of a mile, Turn left into Taylor's driveway. Also, it's their birthday. Help them celebrate. And who needs to search the old box of memories in your brain when you can just take out the box of memories in your phone and... Ah, yes, my cat did sit in the window on March 3rd, 2014. Aww. Today, we're going to examine how the way we recall, retain, and remember things has been altered by digital technology and whether that's a good thing. But before we get to that, we need to brush up on some basics. We need Wendy Suzuki. Hi, my name is Wendy Suzuki. I'm Dean of the College of Arts and Science at New York University and a professor of neuroscience and psychology. I'm also an author and a thought leader in the area of brain plasticity, how our brains have the amazing capacity to grow and change with experience. Wendy's our guide to how memory actually works, starting with the way we're able to make memories stick. So there are four keys to make your memory stick. Key one is the obvious one, repetition. Repetition. The more you repeat things, the more the things come into your life, you're going to remember them. That's obvious. The second one comes from the hippocampus, the key brain structure that allows us to form these kinds of memories, and that is association. Association? The hippocampus is an association maker, and it actually forms what we call episodic memories, the memories for the what, where, when, who, how that make up our lives. The third thing that makes memory stick is novelty. Remember, you know, that time, that weird time that that weird thing happened? Novelty. Our whole brains and our visual systems are actually focused on novelty. It's a danger response mechanism. And we focus on that with our eyes and and our ears, but we remember it as well because it could help protect us. And the fourth key to making things memorable? 
It's my favorite. Emotional resonance. So the happiest and saddest things in our lives, we remember those. Absolutely. But why? The hippocampus sits right up against the amygdala. The amygdala is what is processing all of those scary, bad memories, but also good memories as well. And those strong connections between the amygdala and the hippocampus help us understand why the happiest and saddest moments in our lives gets encoded in our memories. The amygdala is there saying, hey, remember this. This is amazing or this is really scary. You do not want this to happen again. So those are the keys to making memories stick. But how are different types of memory stored in the brain? Like, why can I see my seventh birthday so clearly? So on your seventh birthday, your hippocampus was working and remembering all the cake and the toys and the streamers and, and all the things that you loved about it and the people and the places and the things that, that, that were there. So the hippocampus was working to bring all of those things that were coming in through your senses together and connecting them together into that what's called episodic memory. You, you play it back kind of like a movie. You remember all the things that were there. The hippocampus stays really important in your ability to even retrieve that memory for quite a while. But maybe that was the f- your favorite birthday memory of your whole lifetime. And you went back and back and back to that memory. And, and it really gets strongly encoded in your brain. At that point, you don't need the hippocampus anymore. It, it, it gets stored, we think, in the same cortical areas that process those sensory information, all the visual stuff in your visual cortex and all of the sounds uh, in your auditory cortex. And um, that is kind of the ultimate state of a long-term memory when it's no longer dependent on your hippocampus and it lives in your cortex as a true long-term memory. It's like the aging of a memory in our brains. And there are location shifts. There are uh, brain dependency shifts. And that is one of the things that keeps uh, uh, memory neuroscientists uh, uh, up at night in an interesting (laughs) way. Like, I really want to understand how this works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From what I understand, our memories have the potential to change just in virtue of interacting with them, like just remembering can change our memories. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. So you're referring to the phenomenon of reconsolidation. So before I go into reconsolidation, what is consolidation? Consolidation is what we were just talking about, that the idea that 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 memory of your seventh birthday party got stronger with time. How did it get stronger? With repetition that makes memories strong. So every time you you bring that memory up, it's stronger and stronger and stronger. And as we just talked about, it, it goes from being dependent on the hippocampus to being stored in the cortex. So reconsolidation is the realization that, in fact, every time you're bringing it up, we just thought, oh, it just gets stronger. End of story. But in fact, it goes into a more, the memory goes into a more vulnerable state where it can be changed. So maybe you're having a conversation with your Aunt Mary, and um, she says, 
You remember I was wearing a purple dress at your mm-hmm. seventh birthday party, and <laughs> right? I loved that dress, and I felt so good because I was wearing the dress. And you're like, I didn't care what what dress. But now, <laughs> that's a simple way to understand how a memory can be modified when it comes back, and and you're you're remembering that. So it really opened up lots of uh, thoughts and ideas of new ways to think about memory, new ways to think about the malleability of memory, or mm-hmm. uh, and, and sometimes it could get more truthful. If anybody knows what the real truth of the, your your memory for your seventh uh, birthday party is, or less, depending on the accuracy of of these uh, things that come in when you are remembering the memory. And so that is the idea of reconsolidation. And does that happen even with those memories that become so firmly installed in our brains that the hippocampus is not not yeah. involved in actively remembering? Yeah, that's a great question. It's unclear exactly what point it becomes, okay, now you can't reconsolidate it anymore. But there's a lot of evidence that even long-term memories can be reimagined, re- reconsolidated, depending on, again, what makes memory strong. More repetition, more repetition, more association with this new idea. Maybe a new, um, revelation comes out about that time in your life. That will, that will change the, the flavor of your memory. Maybe it'll change the emotional content of your memory. Mm. So it's actually uh, almost comforting that our memories do have the capacity to take on different flavors, different, uh, nuances. As, as we age, as we start to value certain things more now than we did then, um, they're not set in stone. Um, the, the brain is not, we don't have a, a hard drive yeah. in our brain. And actually, it's probably more malleable than we would want it. It's not a hard drive. Our memories are not particularly good, but they can be changed based on um, how we're thinking about our lives and our memories. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds like that would be a bad thing that your memories can change over time through reconsolidation. But do you think there might be advantages to this malleability of our memory? Well, I I just turn to some of the first efforts to use reconsolidation, the knowledge of reconsolidation in a helpful way. And that was the early studies looking at changing traumatic memories. So could we go back and make traumatic memories that create PTSD situation less emotionally traumatizing? And there was uh, evidence that you could help change some of these uh, memories. We're still working out those protocols, but that's one way that it can be used for good. Of course, I always think of... um, um, what is the Jim Carrey movie? Now I'm forgetting the, the title <laughs> of it. Uh, the, the movie where decided to erase a memory oh, of yeah. a bad uh, breakup. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yeah. Eternal Sunshine. <laughs> I should remember that. Uh, Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind. We have perfected a safe, effective technique for the focused erasure of troubling memories. In a matter of hours. Now that, that takes it way far. They try, they said, well, I could just look in your brain, brain scan your brain and say, oh, there's the memory of that errant boyfriend or girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, let's just suck all of that out. You erased me. I'm sorry. You, you. You know me. I'm impulsive. We do not have the ability to do that. But, um, yes, could it be used in, in those ways that, that would not be beneficial? Absolutely. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. 
I'm Nora Young. Today, as part of our series Being Human Now, we're talking about the relationship between our technologies and memory. Right now, my guest is Wendy Suzuki, an author, professor, and expert in brain plasticity. One thing we've wondered about at Spark is if today's memory-aiding technology, calendar notifications, the phone numbers we have stored in our phones, are changing the way we retain and retrieve information. Because it sure seems like it. So, I mean, I know many fewer telephone numbers today than I knew when I grew up. And that was a form of practicing your memory. I will go back to my favorite uh, saying uh, about how the brain works from my undergraduate mentor, Marion Diamond, a a very, very famous neuroscientist who discovered brain plasticity, how the adult brain can change. Her favorite saying was, use it or lose it. So we Mm -hmm. are losing that ability to remember lots of different things because we rely on on the phone. Um, Do we not remember anything anymore? No. But those memories of the telephone numbers and uh, and addresses, um, even having to use more effort and and your own kind of immediate memory to look at a map. When's the last time you didn't look on a map or Google telling you exactly which direction to go? You know, it's changing the way um, we are using our brains and not taxing our brains, at least in those kinds of ways, as it used to be. Do I feel that my memory is better or worse than it was? Well, it's mixed up with the fact that as we age, There's more things in our lives that we have to remember. And so many people complain to me, oh, my memory's so bad. It may not be bad. It's just that you're you're shuffling. Uh, It's called interference. Too many faces, too many appointments will hinder you from remembering what that face, what that name is. But I think that some of these basic things that the phone is taking over, focusing younger people on these very short snippets that were never meant to particularly be remembered is not good for our brain. As dean of a college at NYU, uh, the deep reading that has not gone away, Mm -hmm. that is harder for anybody to get into when you're used to five-second video that is designed to catch your attention and then throw you on to the next thing. So if we repeat those kinds of experiences, that's what our brains get good at. And and our brains are doing very different kinds of activities now. Mm -hmm. So part of your research involves this idea of brain plasticity, the ability of the brain to, to change and adapt. So does that mean that we can get better at those memory functions if we stop relying on so many short TikTok videos or whatever it is that we're uh, consuming? Absolutely. So, so I mean, the way you use your brain is the way your brain is going to work. And so my specific research within the topic of brain plasticity is what are those kinds of activities that will work to strengthen your brain? The effects of physical activity on the brain, which is so, so powerful and actually um, releases brain chemicals. One in particular is a growth factor called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor that goes directly to your hippocampus and helps brand new hippocampal cells be born. It's one of the only two brain areas in the adult brain where new brain cells are actually born. And exercise is the secret weapon to build new brain cells. So you want better memory? We know that more exercise results in people and experimental animals whose memories work better. Yeah. 
I will tell you, I'm finding this conversation extremely reassuring as a person who fears that I'm losing my ability to remember things. I mean, we all are familiar with the distractibility of our phones. Are there things that we know about the brain's ability to move things from short to long-term memory and the role that distraction from our devices might play in that? Well, certainly, it. this is not any big revelation. <laughs> distraction is very bad if you want to try and learn and remember something. You need to be able to focus your attention on something and stay there for a long time for creativity to happen, for writing to happen. That is not dependent on your hippocampus, it's dependent on your prefrontal cortex. And I'll just give another plug for exercise. The two brain areas that physical movement can benefit, grow, and um, strengthen the most. It grows the hippocampus. It strengthens the prefrontal cortex or the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex. Okay. So this is the realization that I had on my own when I started going to the gym regularly after being a couch potato for six or seven years. And I noticed that my writing was getting better. I was sitting there writing grants all day as, as all my fellow uh, faculty members do. And I was like, wow. This was a good day. This was a good writing day. I had never said that. It's usually like, oh, God, that's just mm. horrible. I don't know whether it's good enough. But I realized the only thing that I had changed in my life was for a whole year and a half, I had really gone from couch potato to really regular gym going. It's like, wow, it's, it's affecting my thinking, my writing, my, my basically my ability to get my job done, which is dependent on grant writing. And that showed me how powerful exercise was, not only for making my brain work better today, but it was, it is, continues to protect my brain from aging and neurodegenerative disease states because prefrontal cortex and hippocampus are also the most sensitive brain areas for aging. Oh, yeah. Optogenetics has made it possible to manipulate and, and even erase memories. Can you talk to me a bit about what some of the benefits might be in using this kind of technology on humans? Yeah. So optogenetics came around after reconsolidation and the, the work trying to diminish the, the powerful traumatic effects of, of the PTSD like memories. And so with optogenetics, we had an even more per- precise tool to manipulate those specific brain circuits. Um, at least in animals that we can see were being lit up in these traumatic situations or in non-traumatic, in any situations. So it, it became even more precise. Can we do this in humans? That is, that is still far away, but there is potential. And I think the question is, uh, and the concerns are exactly the same. It can be very, very beneficial in certain traumatic situations or, and that's just my go-to for obvious ways that it can be helpful. Um, manipulating uh, court cases or, or, um, for, for benefit of, I want to forget my terrible, um, um, relationship. Who's going to decide that? All sticky situations, but good and useful and destructive possibilities at every turn. Wendy, thanks so much for your insights on this. Thank you so much. Wendy Suzuki is a professor of neuroscience and psychology at New York University.
if you remember everything, it is hard to find out what is important, what is not important. It is very hard to prioritize. From the Spark Archives, 2019, Henning Beck, author of Scatterbrain, How the Mind's Mistakes Make Humans Creative, Innovative, and Successful. Henning, one of the things that we've been thinking about is whether having access to all the information on the internet all the time, as opposed to memorizing it, is bad for our brains, like whether there's a negative impact from not having to remember things. What do you think? Yeah. This is the information overkill. If you remember so many things, if you're basically not filtering out information, your brain is going into this overkill mode. Mm. And sometimes you feel that in your daily life because we are over-consuming information and we should not do that. Same with nutrition. When I eat some breakfast, I have to digest. If I eat all the time, I'm going to explode, right? So same with information. If you if you consume information all the time, you're going to explode. And this is what we call forgetting. This is what we call the time seems to fly. This is what we call it is hard to concentrate. It is hard to prioritize. All these new kinds of diseases in the informational age are basically the results of ourselves not taking a break, not digesting information. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nora Young, and this time on Spark, another in our occasional series, Being Human Now. That's where we look at facets of human existence that we once took to be distinctly ours and how they're changing in today's technological moment. This time, memory. From Wendy, we learned how the brain creates and stores memory. Turns out, though, that technology allows us to actually see enduring physical representations of memories in the brain. These are known as memory engrams. To explain, we'll need a systems neuroscientist. Enter Joshua Saranyana. A memory engram is a set of cells in a circuit of the brain that holds information about your experiences of life. If you were to see an engram under a microscope, uh, you would see cells that are various colors. So, for example, you might see some cells that light up green after you train a laboratory mouse during an associative learning task. So, afterwards, you would see a slice of a part of the brain, say, for example, the hippocampus, and uh, you'd see a beautiful image of multiple neurons lighting up, and those cells would hold the information about the experience. Memory engrams are stored in the brain within a network of connected neurons, which Joshua says can be made to glow using proteins found in jellyfish. If you've ever been, say, to Puerto Rico, you can see the waters at night and those bioluminescent jellyfish are are quite amazing to look at, or I should say bioluminescence in general. Earlier, Wendy Suzuki explained why, as Canadian neuroscientist Karim Nader put it, the very act of remembering can change our memories. 
Bringing back an old memory creates a critical window during which that memory can be erased or manipulated. Neuroscientists have done this by artificially activating memory engram cells in lab animals and inserting new information. So you can identify the engram in a part of the brain called the hippocampus, and in doing so, you can more or less implant an experience that occurred prior to, and then you can kind of trick the circuit to associate it with an experience that happened in the past, even though in the present moment, that experience is not happening. But these are mice he's talking about. Using such techniques to experiment on the human brain is still not feasible. And these experiments are limited to the manipulation of single associative memories, such as a learned fear response. Memories are both distributed and localized to a certain extent. So you won't have the full-fledged memory, but you'll certainly see a considerable aspect of what neurons are taking part of the learning experience or you can see which neurons are responsible for uh, recalling the memory. And you can actually inhibit these cells and perturb the memory itself or the learning experience. So you can get pretty refined all the way down to the single cell level and all the way up to the circuit level. I understand it's now possible to manipulate memories using this kind of technology, optogenetics. How, how does that work? The way in which the experiments were done back in oh, 2011, I believe, was by first infecting the laboratory mice with these light-sensitive channels. So you limit the expression of these channels to part of the brain called the hippocampus and even more specifically to sub-regions of this brain. So when you do that, you are able to really manipulate super specific parts of this brain network involved in autobiographical memories or experiential memories. Huh. And so the way in which this experiment was set up is by placing that mouse into uh, an environment, environment one, and you allow that light sensitive channel to express in that environment only. So now those neurons have learned that environment. So then you put that mouse into a second environment that's very different and you shine light on the neurons that were had learned environment one. So as the uh, light sensor channels are turned on for environment one, the animal more or less perceives or remembers the first environment, even though it is in the second environment. As it's in the second environment, it receives a mild foot shock, and it actually will associate the shock to the first environment rather than the environment it is actually in. So in that sense, it has created an association to an experience it's actually not having in that moment. So it's created a false association to, to an experience that's, that was in the past. Do you think this sheds any light on, you know, this aspect of human memory where it is either, you know, subjective, prone to change, or even, you know, a memory of a trauma, which can be triggered when we're not in the exact same situation, but something is triggering that memory for us nonetheless? We have cues that remind us of stuff all the time, whether or not we're attending to it or if it's unconscious. They can be the environment you're in, so like a context. It could be a smell. It can be something that's visual. It can be something that's very discreet. So it doesn't have to be in a full-blown environment. So yes, we can have uh, triggers that come at us and then that can actually result in, say, like um, a traumatic episode. Okay. There are some experiments that look at how to kind of reactivate those experiences and then kind of ameliorate them by reactivating circuits that deal with you know, more or less pleasurable experiences or experiences that are counter to the negative experiences as a way to 
help alleviate the traumatic response. But that's at the circuit level of the brain. So we were talking a bit before about the possibility of manipulating memories using optogenetics. What about implanting false memories? Can you tell me a bit about how researchers go about doing this? There's a circuit manipulation of false memories, and then there's a psychological aspect. Elizabeth Loftus, back in the 90s, helped kind of kickstart this line of research. And since then, it's become pretty routinized regarding how to implant false memories in, in people through photographs and through personal narratives. So you can have participants come in through a controlled uh, lab setting, and it's kind of under the guise of having uh, the participant being told, uh, we just want to understand how memories are recalled. So we're just going to tell you three different experiences that you know your family member or perhaps a friend told us about, and you know just kind of elaborate on them. They'll say, okay, here's experience one, tell us a little bit more about that. Here's experience two, tell us a bit more about that. And here's experience three. And let's say that one is the made-up experience that they want to implant in the person. So they draw attention to that experience, and sometimes they'll provide doctored image, so a photograph that maybe a family member gave to them. And so in a canonical study, there was one where a family member gave a picture of uh, like a father and a son, and they doctored it to put them into a hot air balloon. And they said, you know, do you recall this experience? And the person will say no. And in order to implant that false memory, uh, the person has to more or less accept the suggestion that it could have happened, even if they reject the fact that it did happen at first. So if you say like, look at the photo, did this happen? It's like, no, I don't remember. Or maybe it was my brother, but yeah, I have no recollection. And then the experimenter might say, well, imagine what could have happened if it did. And that's where things really start to kind of happen because it's imagination that is kind of critical for uh, incorporating information into our brain. So as we begin to explore or imagine possibilities, we can kind of suck in information into these networks. When this happens, people start to really elaborate and create these connections. Um, that's when false memories can be incorporated. <laughs> and up to half of the participants can have like a full-blown uh, memory implanted or at least partially implanted. So one of the reasons we're looking at this topic today is we want to understand the role of technology in changing how we think about memory. So overall, how have technologies like optogenetics changed what we understand about the nature of memory? Well, a lot. Uh, it's been a huge uh, revolution, I think, in neurosciences because prior to, we could only kind of eavesdrop on the brain through kind of electrical activity. It didn't give us precise information about which neurons. It gave us precise information about the temporal resolution of activity and generally where we were recording from, but we couldn't see which neurons were doing what. And now we have a very precise understanding of the neurons in the circuit and where they're projecting to and what they're doing at a particular time. And we can control those circuits now. So in turning on or off those circuits, we can have a much greater understanding about how the circuit is either taking part of the uh, memory process or at least contributing to the larger functionality of the brain. And on top of that, it gives us insight into potential therapeutics of when these circuits malfunction. Yeah. Are there ways that this technology could be used to improve memory impairments or, or even diseases like Alzheimer's? Uh, yeah. So there's some evidence for that. There's some research looking at you know, how do we access information that we've forgotten and do memories we have forgotten, do they actually go away or are they still there? Is it 
a problem with access. So some research suggests that, yes, it is a problem of access. So the information may actually be there. It's just that the connections between neurons called synapses may have just actually withered away in some capacity. And that if you can artificially activate them, uh, say through optogenetics, that the memory is actually accessible. You just need to have the uh, circuit activated in some artificial way. And with regard to Alzheimer's disease, we know that there's a type of glial cell called microglia. And in Alzheimer's disease, there is this interaction between inflammation and the overactivation of microglia, and they kind of eat away at synapses. So essentially memory issues in those with Alzheimer's disease and not being able to access information. So there's some data suggesting that when you activate these circuits in these mouse models with Alzheimer's disease, you can actually help hmm. gain access to those memories that were essentially thought to be gone. And just finally, has all of this research changed the way you think about your own memories or, or the role of memory in your own life? Uh, one thing I noticed is that, you know, as a photographer, I go over my photos a lot. And I didn't realize that it helped me a lot with my memories because I'm constantly editing them, referring back to them. And for a while, um, I stopped uh, my own photographic work because I was directing projects with other photographers. And that took its own type of work that took away from my own photography. And so... I realized I was having trouble remembering events because I just didn't have access to those photographic cues, which contain information about what happened, where it happened, and what happened. So even though as much as I know about learning memory, it was just the experience of photographs and referring back to them that, that actually surprised me. Joshua, thanks so much for your insights on this. Uh, thanks so much, Nora. I really appreciate it. Joshua Saranyana is a neuroscientist, photographer, and writer exploring the connections between technology and art. I'm Nora Young. Today on Spark, we've been talking about how technologies like engrams and optogenetics are revolutionizing our understanding of how memories form, as well as how to manipulate them. We've also looked at what our dependence on our digital technologies might be doing to our capacity to create, retain, and retrieve new memories. But we still haven't answered the question, what is the value of human memory? Like, not just in terms of keeping our brains sharp, but in terms of how it situates us in the world and contributes to our sense of self. What does it mean philosophically to be the sort of creatures with rich interior lives of memories? And memories are really integral to how we conceive of who we are and how we remain the same person over time. So our preferences, where we live, what we eat, what we do, what we like and watch and listen to, those things might change over the course of our lives. And there is a real sense in which you can still feel that you are that same person, even if that's not how you feel now. This is Sarah Robbins. She's an associate professor of philosophy at Purdue University. I study memory and the ways we talk about it in philosophy, neuroscience, and psychology. As a philosopher of memory, Sarah sees a clear line distinguishing human memory from digital memory. It seems as if the, the technologies we have for keeping track of all of the information aren't going to integrate it and connect it with what you're feeling and how it is to move around in the world in the same way that is possible when it's kind of centered in you. She's particularly interested in the concept of what's called a memory trace, and she's writing a book about the role it plays in both scientific and philosophical thinking about remembering. I think of the memory trace as the thing that you're holding on to in your mind and 
most likely in your brain to keep track of an experience after you've had it. So it is the the mental record or picture file you're carrying around to make your later remembering possible. But it's not actually sort of a literal, you know, thing that you can point to and say, okay, here's this exact experience of Sarah and and I talking in this particular moment, right? Exactly. No, it's not. Although every time we go to think about them, I think it's very easy to think about them in terms of these sorts of metaphors, thinking about them as the pictures on your phone or the notes that you have in a a notebook or uh, whatever the kind of filing or organizational systems you like. That's often how we think of it. But the ways that they're actually kept, I think, are much harder to express. It's certainly in there in some sense, but not in such a crystal clear, distinct way. And how does that concept relate to this idea of the engram? Yeah, so the engram is a way of taking the general commitment to the idea that there are these memory traces, which is one you find throughout ways that people have talked about memory for centuries. The engram is really a way of taking that broad idea and thinking about it directly in terms of what you might look for for memory in the brain. So the term came from a German zoologist, biologist, Richard Zeman, who was writing at the kind of turn of the 20th century. And he really was thinking, there has to be something like this that explains how our memory is possible. Um, I often like to call him the Mendel of memory, because he's much like Mendel was to Gene. So in the same way, Mendel was saying, there must be something that is explaining inheritance. Zeman was saying, there must be something that explains retention. Yeah. So on the show in the past, we've talked about this idea of extended minds, where kind of ready to hand things like my phone could actually be considered part of my my mind. What do you make of that argument? I have difficulty with the idea that they're fully part of our mind. I mean, I, I certainly use many of these tools and often refer to my memory as living on my phone, as I think many of us do. And it's possible that they are playing a role as as part of mindedness. But what I always hesitate about in the standard arguments for them is that the way that they're invoked to play a role is by serving as a substitute for your memory. So instead of having the memory in your head, the memory is on your phone. And while I do think we offload information, I think part of why we do use those things is because they're better than our memories, or they do things differently, and in ways that if we're using them well, can be complementary. So, you know, I'm not great, maybe we're not great with uh, my son's social security number or the address of particular places. No one remembers phone numbers anymore. These devices are way better at that kind of a thing. But knowing what to get to when and how to integrate it and when it matters and how to connect it to the experiences I'm having. So that if I run into you a week from now, I'll remember to reference the thing we talked about last. Those kinds of connections, I'm not going to get that from my phone. And it seems... I mean, in some sense, it's still extended and that it's about the connections I have with other people, but it's more about what I'm keeping internal to myself. Yeah. Is it partly that you're missing some kind of sense of like context and interconnectedness through those sorts of outboard memories, as I think Cory Doctorow used to call it? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think if you think back to when you used to try to memorize information for exams and things like that, you're trying all of this stuff to, you know, you're trying to learn songs, you're trying to do it in a particular space. And and all of that, I think, is making it not just the information, but connecting and, you know, embodying that information in ways that help to 
integrate and kind of unify it. If it's just sort of static information that lives in a different place, it doesn't undergo that same process. And so it's harder. You have less ways to get into it in the same way. I remember learning the different cranial nerves at some point in a neuroscience class in college and learning a jingle where I would kind of like move my hand around. (laughs) And I couldn't even take the exam without doing that. So it's like the cheat sheet would not have helped me. I needed to, I needed to move. And I think that's fairly common. Yeah, for sure. What about the fear that so much cognitive offloading onto our phones or what have you might be weakening the memory capacity of the human brain? I think even when we do that, you can't offload it fully or else it doesn't work very well. If you don't know where you put it or who you heard it from, or was it in my email or in this social media exchange or something else, if you're not keeping track of how to get to it, that information becomes less relevant. I mean, so the advantage is, you know, if we, if the, all the information is on your phone, then what you have to store is routes to information. And that's maybe easier. But I do think that by letting too much of the work happen outside of you, you are missing this. You run the risk of missing integrating it in various different ways. And I think that's not unique to phones. I think that's the kind of worry that's the worry that's been around for us, at least since Socrates and Plato talked about the concerns about writing itself as being a way Mm -hmm. whereas now we think of that as such an old-fashioned analog way of doing things. But even that, if you're relying too much on the text and not thinking about what it is you're writing or reading, then you're not... It's going to be static and your ways of thinking are going to be dynamic. And I think that stays true. Yeah. With platforms like Instagram and TikTok, it can feel like there's this sort of collective obsession we all have to document our own lives. But does that actually help us remember things better? Like, are we remembering that? Or are we remembering pictures and videos of moments rather than the moments themselves? Yeah, in some sense, it's as, as if we're in this beautiful time of memorialization, but it's actually quite the opposite. I, mean, I always find it sad, even when, though I'm susceptible to the same impulses, when you see, you know, the picture of a, a concert where everyone has their phone up or some something of that sort. Our memories are dominantly visual for many of us if, if we're sighted, and that governs a lot of how we remember it. So I think it's easy to think that what your camera is seeing is a version of your experience, but it is really simply about the seeing and not about the experiencing. So it becomes a lot of what the event looked like and not what it felt like. And yeah, I think it becomes too easy to make it exclusively in that domain in a way that you lose track of what it was like for you, in part because you weren't paying attention to it. Um, You were paying attention to whether your video was correct, but also because what you see from your own perspective comes with, you know, is your heart racing? Is your mind wandering? What's the, how are you feeling with the person next to you, you know, are you tired today? All of that stuff is going to play a role. And that isn't captured in the video that you're providing. And isn't there studies about how people remember the events of September 11th based on there being so much media available about it? You know, we all think that we have some memories, at least that are crystal clear because they are so significant or momentous. And so if you take cultural ones where you can expect many of us do, and you ask people, you know, where were you when this happened? And you ask them over time, you know, so asking them immediately following maybe a week later, two weeks later, and on and on for years to come. At the beginning, people at least give what seem like fully accurate and plausible reports of where they are, where they were. But over time, those shift so that people start to report seeing it on television as if they, they were in front of a television when it occurred, which since it was something like nine o'clock in the morning, it was, you know, 
going to work time for most people. Most people were in the car, arriving at the office, dropping children off at school. And so you know, the odds that that was your first encounter are quite rare for most people. But over time, when you think about that event, it was on television repeatedly um, for weeks and months afterward. And so that image comes to dominate how you think about it. I think we'd now think of it as like the thumbnail that that, <laughs> that memory is stored under. And so then to make sense of why that's the thumbnail, then you have to think like, well, I must have been looking at it. I was just talking to someone the other day who was saying, I didn't know this, but I think one component of one of the studies involved surveying people that worked at a daycare near the World Trade Center who all reported seeing it through the windows, which they didn't report at the time. And there are no windows through which that would have been possible. But that was, I think, their way of saying like, well, they knew that they were close and they developed this visual image from seeing it on television so much. And so there's a way that that image gets incorporated into whatever you know to have been true of your experience. So maybe if you knew you were at work, you think you saw it on a work television, or if you knew you were at home, you think it was your home television or something like that. Or if you knew you were nearby, you think you actually saw it when in fact you didn't. Yeah. And do we know why that happens? Like why our thumbnail of something like September 11th becomes an image from the television or or something like that? I think, you know, for memories like that, that we're recalling a lot, it's overall a good feature of how our mind works. I think that, you know, if something happens and then you get a lot of diff- you want to incorporate the new information that you get, it would be sort of, <laughs> it would be a kind of malfunction of uh, the way you might build a, a mind to have it say, nope, I'm not going to update my information when I get new ideas. I'm not going to connect it to other things. And so I think our brains rightly want to take that and build it into how we think about those experiences. And it seems like our preference or priority when we do that is enriching our understanding of that event, not, you know, veridical, you know, if we're not being documentarians of our lives in those times, we're interested in making sense of the experience and how it relates to us now. We hardly need to be reminded that we live in a world that is becoming more complicated and more crammed with information every day. One description for this vast quantity of data uses that overworked word, explosion. This time, an information explosion. You're listening to Spark from your friends at CBC Radio. I'm Nora Young, and today we're talking about memory, the fifth installment in our occasional series, Being Human Now. Right now, my guest is philosopher of memory, Sarah Robbins. We're talking about how our ability to modify memories over time and change how we think about them sets us apart from the digital devices we've come to rely on to keep an accurate record. And of course, unlike our digital technologies and the way they store information, we don't remember everything. Is there a value in human forgetfulness? I think so. I mean, I, I'm enamored of a night of a lot of recent work from Paul Franklin in Toronto and some, some of these researchers that are using optogenetics and, and Sheena Jocelyn in their connected lab as well have been doing a lot of really interesting work paying attention to the ways in which forgetting is about efficiency. It's about, it's part of the process of being a good organizer of the information that's available to you. So, you know, you could be a wonderful collector of things in the world. And if you don't organize your collection well, <laughs> 
there's not really a point to it because you can't get to what you care about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. But I think that's that's true also for memory. So there are ways in which forgetting is both kind of getting it out of the way so that the things that you care about are more easily accessible. So it's playing a really important role, even if, you know, maybe sometimes we get it wrong. I want to remember, uh, you know, something and I don't want to remember this ad jingle. Mm. That's unfortunate. But for the most part, um, it's our brain's ways of trying to prioritize the organization that suits our interests. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that differentiates how you or I remember versus say how Instagram stores a memory is that I change over time, right? The way I remember a painful teenage memory when I'm 25 is different from how I remember when I'm 40, because hopefully I've learned something in the intervening time, maybe not. Uh, Do you have thoughts on that sort of subjective aspect of memory and how perhaps that might serve us? I certainly think it's helpful for how we come to understand ourselves. And if, so if, if you care about that, then I suppose you especially think that it's useful. Yeah, whether it serves a kind of broader, you know, evolutionary function or something like that, I think that's harder for me to think about exactly what that might be. But it does highlight this really interesting sort of disconnect there can be between what a situation feels like and what it feels like to relive it. Because of course, you know, I remember being a teenager and thinking that it was the worst pain I'd ever felt and I would even though people say to the contrary, I'd never get over it. And clearly you do and and it becomes very important to you. And so I think there is a lot of insight you can get from recognizing that that's the case. And so it's it certainly serves us well and is good that we have that access and ability. With AI systems becoming increasingly more sophisticated, what sets humans apart from technology in terms of how we remember? This is something I've been thinking about a lot lately as AI is becoming a very dominant conversation for all of us, especially in higher education. And I think, you know, the, the AIs on which we're focused right now, most of the, the current conversation is about these large language models that are, you know, they are massive networks that have generalized over unreal amounts of human text conversation. Things like ChatGPT, for example. ChatGPT and these kinds of things are taking all the language available on the internet or some very large approximation of that. And then they're generalizing on the basis of that. So they're they're explicitly not trying to keep track of what information they got where. Um, in fact, if they did, if they got too focused on memorizing what was in front of them, that's that's not what they're intended to do. This is a sort of overfitting worries that people worry about in that literature, which is quite different from how at least part of what it is that we do in the world. So these systems are not designed to recognize something they've seen before or to report on their individual experiences. So one of the big conversations about these models for a while has been their hallucinations, right? As they get called these, they'll say things that are entirely made up and, you know, there's a desire to get them to distinguish these things. But from their perspective, there is no difference. It's all hallucination from that, right? It's all a way of creating a, you know, story in response to the command that fits the bill. And we certainly are capable of some ways of behaving in that, but it's very different from how we orient to our experiences in the world. So we're not perfect rememberers in terms of the amount of things that we remember or getting all of the details right. But our memories are far more grounded in the actual experiences that we have. I mean, we often think of our tendency to forget things as a problem or a cognitive defect, but is building infallible memories into machines a good idea or is there perhaps a value in teaching AI how to forget? 
some of the reasons, I think there's some very practical ones in that there's security risks, of course, if they're keeping track of our information in various ways and doing those sorts of things. But I also think we do want them to be able, I mean, I guess it depends on what it is that we're using them for. And I think that's part of the conversation now is figuring out what it is we want to be using them for. So sometimes when these kinds of systems like books and other repositories in the world, if their job is to do what we don't do so well, maybe we do want them to be non-forgetting. We want them to be archives of how the world was. But that's not the way that these systems are being used. They're being used as kind of as generative models of what could possibly be the case, uh, you know, sort of ways of exploring you know, what is what's next of, of all the things we've said and done so far. And just finally, I want to ask you about something that Elon Musk said at a presentation at uh, Neuralink. And this is a quote, in the future, you'll be able to save and replay memories, you could potentially download them into a new body, or into a robot body. So based on your understanding of how memory works, do you think this could one day be possible? Interesting. I had no idea he said that. I'm not surprised. But, uh, um, I mean, maybe in some very limited sense. So some of the optogenetic style work I was mentioning earlier has been used to, once we know enough about very basic associative memories in rodents, been able to implant versions of those memories in them, where this is really just implanting an, an aversive association with a smell that they hadn't previously smelt. So it's a, the, the basics of that are there in some sense. And so, you know, there is a way in which you might be able to do some forms of that, even for some kinds of human remembering. But I think, and this is a point I derive from the work of another philosopher, Maria Schechtman, um, that I've always found really influential, is that if you think about the kind of memory that might be available for that sort of download, like, so imagine, you know, a memory of being at a concert with your family or a beach vacation or something of that sort, where you have all of this information. Imagine that suddenly I have that and I'm broadcasting it from my perspective. It's either going to be like a really weird way of watching your home movies, because I'm not going <laughs> to recognize anything. (laughs) I don't know whether this is annoying. This is a good song to you. You know, like I don't have any of that. Or you're going to have to bring over all of this other information along with it, that that our memories just, they're too holistic and connected. If they're really going to feel like memories, not just, I mean, you know, people could give me foreign languages and all the things I forgot from high school chemistry. I would be very grateful to have that information. But in terms of memories and the sense of experiences, I think that seems like a hurdle that is not technological. It's sort of conceptual to making that happen. Sarah, thanks so much for your insights on this. Yes, absolutely. It was a really fun conversation. Sarah Robbins is an associate professor of philosophy at Purdue University. She specializes in the philosophy of memory. You've been listening to Spark. The show is made by Michelle Parisi, Sam Marie Johannes, Megan Carty, and me, Nora Young. And by Wendy Suzuki, Joshua Saranyana, and Sarah Robbins. And from the Spark archives, Henning Beck. Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favorite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.